1: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I think that we are able to deliver quicker and stronger than I think anybody expected from the Commission.
2: Welcome to another special episode of EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. Hope you're all holding up okay. This is the second of our extra weekly episodes devoted to how Europe is coping with the coronavirus crisis. Coming up today, we'll talk to our health team about the prospects of a coronavirus vaccine and we'll look at how EU countries are starting to help one another and ask how long that might last. We'll also hear about people for whom COVID-19 is particularly dangerous. But first, let's talk to someone very directly involved in Europe's response to the crisis, the European Commissioner for Home Affairs, Ilva Johansson who you also heard at the very start of the podcast. She's one of eight commissioners coordinating the EU's coronavirus response. I spoke to the commissioner a bit earlier today. Commissioner Johansson, thanks very much for joining us on EU Confidential. One of your jobs at the moment is looking at the internal borders uh, within the European Union. We saw lots of countries take measures to close down or severely restrict Uh, access to their borders as a result of this crisis. Um, What's the current situation right now with the internal borders within the EU, within the Schengen zone, and, and what ones are causing you concern?
1: The situation right now is that many of the member states had and have uh, restrictions for uh, entry to their territory but we have been working very hard the last week together with the member states and they also asked us for guidelines and coordination to make this work smoothly so there've been a, a lot of big Improvement. Uh, the last days, when it comes both f- for the goods to let through and also for citizens, uh, there could be uh, still some problems. But I think that the atmosphere is very constructive in solving these problems together with with member states and and neighbouring member states. Which
2: are the areas when you kind of look at your your map of Europe? What's kind of flashing red at the moment? Where are there still? Where are the biggest border problems right now?
1: Well, it, it depends. Well, we have some problem with the after Serbia uh, has closed uh, their borders uh, very sharp also for their own citizens. So, this is one of the areas we need to, to solve, of course. But overall, I must say that I think that the reaction from many member states was in the beginning to react, oh, there is a virus coming, we have to close the borders. But then I think more and more uh, many of them realize that this virus is in all member states so we can't stop the virus because it's already there what we can do is to limit contagion and to do that by uh, limiting social interaction and of course traveling is part of social interaction so that's why it makes sense to to limit that but we have to do it in a proportionate way so that we do not hamper economy or uh, the ability for people to get to their job and things like that more than necessary and this is this is the reaction I see right now
2: but aren't there particular, I mean, with the one we've heard about is the Hungarian border in particular. There seemed to be a problem with Romanians being able to even get home. Is that one resolved now?
1: Yeah, that's what I, uh, the information I got, that I think this has improved a lot. And if I just want to make some comment, I think that sometimes your first reaction as to. You know, trying to uh, save yourself. Uh, you can see it on an individual basis where people go to shops and buy toilet paper and and pasta, and and. But after a while, you realize that this is not what I need. What I need is good neighbors, so that they can help me when I in in trouble or if I need somebody to help me to go to the shop uh, and do things like uh, like that. And I think this is the same reaction we see among member states. Uh, of course, there's always always new problems popping up and we are dealing with them but this is not this thing that keeps me awake uh, during night i must say
2: mm. what does keep you awake at night
1: it's uh, the situation with with the migration uh, according to to the virus that's one of the things that keeps me awake
2: Sorry, could you just explain a bit more?
1: Well, there are uh, two kinds of problems, both that we are still have uh, arrivals of, of irregular migrants to European Union, but there is more or less a no that could be returned to the country of origin. And there's also problems with the relocation. So this is, of course, a problem for countries of first entry. And of course, you are all very much aware of the situation on the hotspots on the Greek islands, where uh, for some, uh, where a lot of people, the situation has been uh, unacceptable already before this uh, Corona crisis. And of course, the risk of having the virus in those camps is. Uh, a uh, really uh, dangerous one.
2: Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that later. I mean, what what can you as the commission, what can the Greek authorities uh, do to try and prevent that um, scenario? What are you doing at the moment?
1: We are supporting the Greek authorities, of course. I spoke with the Greek minister today just a few hours ago. Uh, So we are in constant uh, contact trying to find uh, uh, good solutions. The situation right now, as the minister explained to me, is that the virus is not on the islands and they are put more or all islands are in a kind of quarantine and nobody is allowed to enter there Trying to keep the virus out, and of course that uh, sounds uh, a good thing to do. But it still uh, remains also what what shall we do if the virus turns up? Uh, even though, so this is one of the issues that we are in in constant uh, contact with and discussing also together with organizations like UNHCR, IOM, uh, Medicine Sans Frontieres, uh, how they also can help to have a better capacity uh, on the islands.
2: Are are things moving on that? I mean, are you... Confident, if if there were to be an outbreak, that you know there's capacity there to deal with it.
1: I mean, the situation was uh, not acceptable even before the the crisis of Corona, and of course it's not easier now to solve it. But we are still working constantly on this, and we are also working on the relocation of unaccompanied minors from the Greek hotspots. And I'm uh, hope that we can be able to to carry that out, even though we need to have take some additional measures when it comes to quarantine and testing.
2: Okay, if we come back to the internal uh, borders briefly, can you just explain to our listeners um, why this is such a big deal, keeping those borders open? Because a lot of people uh, may think, well, if the whole problem is movement, the one way to to stop movement is to close down borders, stop people uh, moving around. So why is this such a big deal? What are the implications if things don't move freely through the borders?
1: Well, what we need to do is to limit contagion, and that's why we need to limit social interaction. But to be able to limit social interaction, we also need to have a lot of ordinary things going so that people can go to their jobs, so that uh, all their foods and, and the goods that we need can be there, so we don't uh, cause uh, uh, additional problems that will also be uh, damaging the possibility to limit social interaction. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is also, of course, that we need the economy to keep on going, even now it's on a lower level, but it's important that we can supply each other with uh, the goods that we need. And not at least for medical Equipment, so all these things need to be there. Food need to be there. A lot of goods need to be there. That's why uh, we should not act in a way so that what we are doing to protect ourselves uh, uh, turns up to be acting in the opposite direction.
2: Are there any concrete examples just to help our listeners understand of of that have worried you of of medical equipment or of, of particularly valuable? Goods that are that have been held up because of this, I and mean, are you aware of specific examples of that nature
1: well I'm not sure whether I should sit here and talk about bad examples because we're actually solving things now so a lot of these have been have been solved yeah. but we was in a situation where trucks were, were stuck in long queues for hours and hours and hours and everybody can understand this is not a good situation or if people are crowded at the borders and can't get through this is of course not good for limiting the contagion and then we need a lot of supply uh, for example, For example, when Commissioner Kiriakides called out to all member states to find out whether they have uh, pharmaceuticals enough, and they answered, yes, we have, but they are uh, now stuck in queues. So the supply chains was a problem, not uh, actually the the capacity. So these are examples of why it's important that this uh, will uh, go in a smooth way. And also that we have a lot of cross-border workers that are really essential for, for example, having the healthcare systems in some member states to work uh, in a proper way. And of course, if these pe- people can't get to their job or home from their job, then we will have uh, severe problems. Problems in some uh, important services, and how is the Commission
2: in general uh, handling this? Obviously, this is a, a big crisis for a Commission that's only been in office for a short time. Um, can you give us a general sense? I believe you're part of the the daily task force that meets every day. Give us a sense of of, of your typical day, or, or how the Commission is structuring its response to to this.
1: Yes, my typical day is a very, very long day Uh, and uh, it's seven days a week. Uh, So we have uh, every morning at nine um, for this group of commissioners um, that are um, mostly involved and it's led by um, the president. And then we go through the different tasks for the day usually takes one hour it's quite focused on on operational things and then we we work during the days with these tasks and that includes a lot a lot a lot of com, uh, contacts with member states and for me a lot of ministers bilaterally and also video conferences i have video conference with my my ministers three times last week going to be two times this week we have a special covid border group that meet uh discussing and solving uh, issues with the with the borders of course a lot of direct contact with other commissioners so there is a lot of contacts and i think that of course this has to be evaluated afterwards uh, if things could be done even better but so far i think that we are have been able to deliver uh, quicker and stronger than I think anybody expected from the Commission in in this in this case because in many of these areas the the Commission do not have the formal competence but we have been given the competence so to say, asked by the Member State to take this role and, and we have been taking it. And you can see also practical things like some Member State had Export bans on medical equipment. There've been some other problems that we've been able to solve by a lot of direct uh, bilateral contacts, and also uh, helping member states to have direct contacts with their neighbouring uh, member states, facilitating these kind of uh, problem-solving platforms, so to say.
2: Mm. A-, a final question, maybe just on how you personally are handling all of this. You're, you're fairly new to, to to Brussels, to being based uh, to being a full time EU official Um, I imagine you have family back in in Sweden you know how are you managing I think everyone is you know faces these situations where you're separated from loved ones Um, social life is severely restricted how do you personally deal with all of that
1: well my husband is coming to me so he's here right now and uh, but of course I miss my children they are grown up now but I talk to them but I of course I I I'm longing to hug them also. I hope maybe there will be an opportunity in Easter, but let's see how things develop.
2: Yeah, thank you. And I hope um, we can talk again. I believe you're... um Am I correct in saying you're a fan of Hammerby, the, the football team?
1: Hammerby and Liverpool are my two teams. OK,
2: well, I don't, know, um, I don't know how well you know your Hammerby history, but my team, St. Mirren, Scottish football team, were beaten by Hammerby in very traumatic uh, circumstances many years ago. So maybe in happier times, we can talk about that.
1: Yeah, we're happy to do. The, the, the start of the National League in Sweden has been postponed for, uh, I guess, one or two months. So that's, that's a pity.
2: Yeah, we're all missing football, among many other things, although it's, although it's fairly trivial. But, That's really uh, one of like the this, hard things, you know, yeah. living
1: without any football at
2: all. Just when we could use a distraction. <laughs> Commissioner, thanks very much for your time. Uh, very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Commissioner Johansson. And now let's welcome the hardest working team in healthcare coverage right now, Politico's own team of health reporters. Hi to Sarah Wheaton. Hi, Sarah.
0: Hey there.
2: Hi to Jillian Deutsch.
0: Hello.
2: And also to Carmen Pound. Hi, Carmen. Hi, Andrew. How's everybody doing with the homeworking uh, so far? Adjusting or is it a bit of a struggle?
4: It's a bit of a struggle, especially when you have a toddler um, that takes your <laughs> hand and takes your headsets away and then steps on them and then beats your computer with a carrot uh, because <laughs> you've been in front of it for too long. <laughs> this has all happened uh, to is... me in two days. Yeah.
2: I'm a big fan of audio, but just, uh, you know, I wish we'd had video there because uh, I can see on the connection here that Carmen kind of wiped her weary eyes there. She was telling us that story. Sarah, Jillian, you guys doing okay?
3: Yeah, luckily for me, it's just two pesky cats running around. So a little bit less uh, havoc, I think. (laughs)
0: Likewise, I have a dog who is annoyed that I am at home, but I'm not taking him for a walk. And basically, all I'm doing is preventing him from sneakily sitting on the couch, which I know he likes to do when I'm not home, even though he's not allowed.
2: Yeah, well, I think this is, we're all getting even better at pet mind reading, right, these days. Um, (laughs) Let's uh, get to the the business at hand. There's been, you know, so much of it. Time moves in such a strange way at the moment. But uh, last week, I think we talked a bit. Uh, Sarah about the you know the prospects of of a vaccine for the coronavirus, and um, since then there 's been quite a lot of talk about that um led by the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Can you just um, fill us in on what she 's been saying and uh, what your own reporting says about the the prospects of a vaccine anytime soon?
0: She posted a tweet saying that a company that the EU has given some financial help to may well have a vaccine, quote, on the market, perhaps before autumn. And that just came out of nowhere because nobody who knows the process of developing vaccines seems to think that that's realistic at all. Um, Both regulators and scientists have repeatedly been saying it will take at least a year, if we're really lucky, maybe a year and a half, maybe longer, so we uh, we asked her what she was thinking. Sarah Wheaton with Politico. Um, President von der Leyen, um, today you posted a video on Twitter. Um, and about- um, her answer was, well, this is what the company told me. So they are highly specialized in this field, and uh, it's uh, their prediction
4: that uh, they might be able towards uh, fall to have the possibility to have a vaccine that uh, is fighting coronavirus. it was. And
0: when we asked if she was going to do something to speed up the regulatory process, she was like, well, um, we can speed up all of these bureaucratic processes.
2: Yes, I
4: think um, as we are in a severe crisis, we all see that uh, we are able to speed up any of the processes that are slow normally and take a lot of time and are very bureaucratic um, we all know. It, goes through
0: it was quite the- a striking yeah. remark from a doctor um, who seemed to be suggesting uh, that um, clinical trials to determine whether things are safe and actually work are just uh, bureaucracy.
2: Yeah, she seems to be out on a limb a little bit there. Obviously, the, the main investor of this company, CureVac, which has been at the centre of a lot of attention, the one that she spoke to, has also kind of raised that timeline as something that would be, you know, ideal or desirable. Um, but as you say, and as your own reporting has shown, you know, the, the EU's own regulator in this area and many others, including French President Emmanuel Macron, who came out towards the end of the week and said, you know, we're talking uh, sort of winter, not, not even this coming winter, but the following winter. So, you know, at the very least, um more confusing kind of messaging there from 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 European leaders.
0: Right. And the only other leader who seems to be talking about the same sort of timeline as the commission president is U.S. President Donald Trump. That happened well before uh, President von der Leyen made her comments, and he was repeatedly criticized and contradicted by his own experts. So we don't usually think of the two of them as as being the same sort of communicator. And it was was quite striking to see them both uh, kind of stand firm on this same um, really unjustified optimism.
3: Yeah, and it's also worth noting, like when I call vaccine experts about this and tell them what what Ursula von der Leyen said, they actually just start laughing. <laughs> That's usually like the first response that I've heard. So um, experts are not necessarily getting in line with this. Uh, it's very optimistic timeframe
0: from the commission president. It's not really even that it was optimistic. It was it was kind of just just incorrect because this vaccine they already pretty much have formulated it. It needs to go into clinical trials, and if things are kind of working smoothly, they'll only have finished the first phase of those clinical trials by autumn. And that just basically tells us whether the vaccine is generally safe in the short term, not even really whether it works or what dosage. And so in order for her prediction to be correct, we would have to just eliminate the tests to see whether the vaccine actually works. So it's not a question of people just like working harder or having more money thrown into the system.
2: Let's switch to another aspect of, of all of this, which is the, you know, the, the lockdowns which have been spreading across uh, Europe, more and more restrictive measures on, on movements, on gathering. Carmen, this is something you've been looking into, particularly after the Belgian health minister made some remarks which were interpreted to mean kind of lockdown for, for eight weeks. Uh, what have you been finding out about how long this might last?
4: I did see clarification from her spokesperson about whether she meant eight weeks of restrictions uh, or eight weeks of something else and he did say that she was not referring to confinement or restrictions that she was talking about the virus being among us, about flattening the curve and obviously no one really knows how long the restrictions will last. He did clarify that so far um, they're in place until when the Belgian Prime Minister said Um, and then obviously they do evaluate it based on Um, the evolution of the situation and the risk management and of course that might change we've seen already um, the restriction being um, extended in in Spain being uh, tightened in Italy Um, there are discussions about that in France too so if I am to make a forecast um, you don't have to (laughs) (laughs) yes uh, it might it might last a bit longer uh, than maybe the, the initial dates but who no one really knows
2: Right. Yeah. And um, on the even more serious kind of human impact of all of this, you know, often uh, we understand that the people most at risk are the elderly, uh, you know, people over 70, over 80. But Gillian, you've been talking or focusing on on another group of people who would also be uh, greatly at risk from the spread of, of the virus. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
3: Yeah, I've been talking to some people who are immunocompromised. I mean, their immune systems are not uh, quite as, as capable of fighting off the coronavirus if they were to contract it. Um, and so I don't want to forget that there's a huge mental health aspect to this because not only are these people facing potentially um, a much much more serious physical side effects if they were to get sick, um, but they're just living right now in fear that they're going to get it. Um, and so I spoke to a psychotherapist in Italy who works with patients with pulmonary fibrosis, and he was saying that these are also already patients that have a depression. And right now they're now living in fear that their caregivers are going to be the ones who who bring them the virus. And so they they're actually are being encouraged, of course, to live in isolation, which makes their depression much worse. But then they're worried, too, that if they were to contract the virus, are they going to end up in a hospital and die alone? I mean, it's they're facing some really very legitimate and really horrible, scary fears.
2: Right, and these are people whose immune system is weakened for for various reasons. Right, what would be the most common?
3: Patients with cancer who are currently seeking treatment or who are who've just recovered from treatment are are a bit more um, at risk, but also people with diabetes, cardiovascular disease and these are people whose immune systems would have a much harder time fending off the disease if they were to or fending off the virus if they were to get it. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're more at risk of of getting it. That's often a miscommunication, but if they were to get the virus, they have they would have a much harder time um becoming healthy again.
2: Okay, and if we look at, as I say, time moves really strangely at the moment. Um, any kind of markers, any kind of next decision points or, or decisions that are going to have to be made by political leaders, um, you know, by health ministers or scientific experts? I'm going to open this up to any of you. What do you think are the next kind of key decisions or, or decision points that we're, we're likely to see in the kind of days or the next week or so as we look ahead?
0: Well, we're about to enter um, an upsetting period, arguably, because actually people who were exposed to the virus before these lockdowns started last week are really going to just start getting sick and going to the hospital now. It takes about a week or so, um, a little longer to really get bad symptoms brewing up. And so we're going to be in this situation where everybody feels like they're making a big sacrifice, but they're still seeing these. These horrible um, outcomes, and um, I think we'll start. We'll probably start seeing um, health ministers uh, pushing for extensions of these lockdowns. But at the same time, we're also going to see tension with um, political leaders and businesses saying, "Look, you know, how long? How long are we really going to shut down the economy?" And especially if people are looking at the hospital and saying, "Hey, everybody's getting sick anyway." That's going to create kind of two dueling pressures. It'll, you'll have kind of one side saying, well, this shows we need to lock down even more. You'll have another side saying, what's the point of any of this? And um, we don't really have the knowledge to say that either side is, is more or less correct.
2: OK, maybe a final one for, for both you, Carmen and Gillian. Um, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of this crisis of a lack of European solidarity. felt like every country was doing its own thing and really thinking first and foremost and perhaps only about its own citizens. Have we seen any signs in terms of sharing of, of equipment or uh, even hospital beds being made available that that's uh, changing at all? Carmen?
4: Yes, we've seen the first transfers of patients, um, although granted it's in a border area, it's between France, Germany, um, Luxembourg, and Switzerland. So um, a few German uh, regions and Luxembourg and Switzerland took a few patients from the neighboring region of France. I guess we would need to see whether that happens with Italy, which seems to be um, really overwhelmed right now and... If other countries will be able to take them, there might also be an issue regarding the transportation of these patients, whether they need to be uh, transported on a short distance and not very far. And we have also seen a relaxation of... Of export bans on protective equipment, um, but it hasn't happened across the board. So while countries like Germany have lifted it, there are still countries um, in Central and Eastern Europe, like Czech Republic and Romania, who are still banning exports of, of this kind of equipment and also some medicines that are used to treat the complications of uh, of the virus.
3: Uh, yeah, and actually you saw this, this at the end of last week, some face masks that were sent from China to Italy that were First sent to Czech Republic to get to Italy, uh, they were actually seized by the Czech government and the Czech government said that they thought that they were going to be sold on the black market. So they wanted to confiscate them. But uh, NGOs have said that it's quite clear um, from the the packaging that this was humanitarian aid from China. the Czech Republic has said that they're they're sorry that they did this, essentially, and that they're going to send some of their own face masks now to Italy. But there's definitely some tension between countries that, that have export bans and who seem to be taking some of this gear for themselves.
2: OK, well, let's see how that progresses in the, in the days and weeks ahead. I'll let you guys all get back to stories, which I know you're all working on. And, uh, you know, for now, we'll talk to you again very soon at the very latest next Monday. And in the meantime, you know, stay healthy. And that's all we have time for on this special episode of EU Confidential. I'll be back on Thursday with our regular podcast panel and we'll bring you special coronavirus episodes for the foreseeable future as much as anything is foreseeable these days. If you have an idea for a topic you'd like us to report on, please email us at podcast at and feel free to send us your feedback as well. You can also leave us a review and you can hit subscribe on your podcast app so you get our future episodes automatically. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.